So it's not so easy to borrow at the state level. And as a result of this, I think states need to be thinking proactively, first of all, about their own economy, about their own you know, business environment to be attracting the best and brightest. I mean, right now we still have this degree of freedom within the United States. to Lincoln on Lincoln, the podcast on 13th and Lincoln, talking about things to 23rd and Lincoln. I'm your host, Curtis Shelton, joined as always with Ryan Haney, my co-host, and our producer, Lindsay McSparin. Ryan, this is the uh, the end of the series, part three of the economics podcast. How you feel? How you feel about it? I, I, I just shed a small tear. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you, I mean, we can go through maybe just what's new and stuff with legislative session, but I was going to ask, at the end of this this series now, have you learned anything? Anything jumped out to you in particular? Um, uh, I mean, I just, I think to what we talked about today uh, with with Jeff was it, it it hit a lot of my own hobby horses. You know, I've been screaming even before I came to work for OCPA that that if we want to, if we want to affect change, like it's going to happen on the local level and, and really at the state level, um, I, I, I grow so tired of going to like grassroots meetings or whatever. And all they want to talk, it's like, a, you know, a bunch of, you know, blue collar, you know, great people, but all they want to talk about is stuff that's going on in Washington, DC, half a continent away. And, you know, uh, there's so much that we can be doing here, um, you know, not that we can affect, not that we can have any real effect on inflation here and, and our local, our local politicians should just drop that because there's, there's, as Jeff said, there's just not much we can do as long as we're using the dollar, um, you know, but, uh, you know, the things that you and I talk about all the time, right, like school choice and lower taxes and, uh, you know, those are those are things that are are going to make Oklahoma uh, an attractive place uh, for other people to come and live and start a business and grow their business and um, you know start a family and you know at some level we are at the mercy of the idiots in Washington but like I'm just done I'm done focusing on that so. You know, I mean, that's probably a little recency bias. I, you know, admittedly, Dr. Salerno and, and, and Dr. Violin were, they, you know, they were talking about things that I was already sort of learning in, in my study. So um, sure, that's true. I don't want to say I didn't learn anything from them, but, you know, that was more of like, you know, just sort of going over some things that, that I was already familiar with. But both of those were great podcasts. Now, I suspect that for most people, uh, the Salerno podcast talking about inflation is going to be or, or was an eye opener for them because I think people mm. don't quite understand. Um, I mean, it's like they understand what they see, which is higher prices. Um, but even today, you know, that was it. That was I forget the way uh, Jeff put it, but um, he had a really he, he had a really nice turn of a phrase talking about inflation as sort of, um, you know, the difference between it, you know, price inflation, the, the, the increase in prices and versus inflation is like a growth in the money supply. Right. So, right. um, yeah, it's, it's, 
studying economics has made me very intolerant of our federal delegation. I mean, it's almost impossible not to, right? Like, I think so. I mean, I remember even in high school, you know, apolitical me who didn't really care about anything outside <laughs> of Enid for the most part. You know, you hear outside about of baseball. The, yeah, basically, <laughs> um, you hear about the debt all the time, right? It's just something that's constantly talked about. And as a 17 year old, I'm looking at it at these trillions of dollars. And I'm like, look, there's you, you, you just instinctively know there's really nothing that's going to be done. Even back then, it's like, unless they tax us way more than they are, which is never going to happen, there is no paying that down without some crazy radical thing happening, which is just incredibly unlikely without some huge crisis forcing it upon us. Yeah, I, I think that's bummer, right. But. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's one of it's one of those things where, um, you know, I'm not one of those people who believes that like World War II brought us out of the Great Depression, but certainly World War II devastating most of the developing world, except for us, helped us sort of move out of that. But goodness gracious, like that's not what you want. Like you don't want to fix economic problems by sending you know, a gazillion people, you know, young men to their deaths on, you know, battlefields in Europe or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, in the next 20 to 30 years and, and probably even sooner than that, we, you know, we're going to be in for, for something pretty gnarly at the, at the federal level, as far as, um, you know, and Jeff talked about this, you know, the, the unfunded liabilities that, that we're coming up on. Like, thank goodness, you know, we've talked about this. I, I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast, but you've certainly written a lot about it. Uh, Jonathan as well. Um, you know, get, thank goodness Oklahoma got rid of a lot of its unfunded liabilities, right? I mean, yeah. uh, because it's one thing to have, like the, the federal government's going to have all these unfunded liabilities and every state's going to suffer to some degree because of that. But it, but imagine if you're Illinois, right? And you've got your own unfunded liability. So then it's like a double, uh, you know, the, the problem is, is doubled because right. now your state economy is in a mess too. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that that's something that to the extent that our, our lawmakers want to, you know, want to do something here at the state level, um, getting rid of any kind of unfunded liability, shrinking the size of government, cutting taxes, those are the things that got to happen, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think this is a good transition um, for what we're going to be talking about probably for the next at least handful episodes over the next few months as sessions ramps up, right, is all the ideas that are going to be talked about over the next few months that aim to do just that, whether it's lower taxes. There's a handful of bills right now that are, or at least there's an A bill that looks to kind of reform the teacher's retirement system to make it more stable, Um as well as some of the bad bills that are going to look to make those things worse. But I think anybody who maybe didn't find these episodes interesting, I think there's a lot that's going to be very pertinent moving forward for sure. Yeah. And if you, I mean, not, not because of us, you know, certainly, I certainly not because of me, but if you didn't find these episodes interesting, like I I don't know that you've got a pulse because we had some, I mean, banger guests Mm -hmm. um, and talking about in my, in my mind, things that affect us every day. Yeah. Um, and the so, idea of economics being a social science, I think, was very. I hope any if anybody took something away from that, from these episodes, I hope it's 
that economics is approachable and it's not some sort of hard science where you need a statistics background or a financial or math background to figure out. It's a lot more about understanding people. Um, I think which, that's right. And, and matter of fact, I'm, I'm about to embark on a term paper. Uh, and, I, you know, I always try to think about, okay, how can I make my term paper something that applies to my work? And I'm about to embark on a term paper that is going to look at the types of statistics that the, that Oklahoma collects and uses and sort of critique it from an Austrian perspective and hopefully be able to conclude, Hey, these are good statistics that we're keeping. Here are some other bad, you know, here's some others that we, that are, we're keeping and using that are not good metrics uh, for, for various reasons. And we should sort of shift or, or keep do more of this and less of this um, because at the end of the day, like, you know, just the collection of statistics grows government, right? The collection of that kind of data. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then you start looking at the data and, you know, there's all kinds of bad things going on in the world. Uh, Murray Rothbard sort of um, tongue in cheek said, you know, you've got kids with cavities and old people with diabetes and, you know, before you know it, it's like, oh, we've got to, we've, you know, we've got to jump in with government to fix all of these, these problems. And, you know, it's, it's no coincidence that the rise of progressivism and the beginning of the progressive era was also, also, you know, it, it coincided with this rise in collecting statistics, analyzing statistics, you know, the, the popular line, popular line of trusting the experts, trusting the science, that sort of stuff. Right. So, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it turned into, we can make a model work that like proves some sort of economic success or growth from some program rather than just looking at incentives and how people act. Yeah, exactly. Like, because at the end of the right? day, yeah, at the end of the day, it's just individual people acting, right? Like mm. we all have varying um, things that we want out of life. And we go about trying to maximize our, our own happiness. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is interesting. I, you know, the, and the other thing is, as we're recording this, we're at the end of the first week of session. Not a ton of stuff happened this week. And we could have analyzed the state of the state. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you know, this is no shade against the governor. But, like, it's all rhetoric until, you know, it's just words until – until he signs bills, right? Until they until mm -hmm. they start moving stuff. So, um, you know, the Senate did a fair amount of work this week. Uh, the House canceled most of their committee uh, meetings. Uh, we had the state of the state. I think the governor said some wonderful things, mm -hmm. but again, until you know, pen meets paper, it's they're just words. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully, we'll in you know our next episode there'll be some some interesting developments and we can, we can certainly talk about those. That'd be fun. Yeah. Should be good. All right. Well, without further ado, should we get to the interview? I think so. Enjoy right. everybody. Well, we are ecstatic today to have uh, another guest from the Mises Institute, uh, Jeff Dice, the president of the Mises Institute. Um, this is the third and final installation of the uh, economics in three podcast series that we're doing and then uh, going to get back to uh, talking about what's going on at the Capitol. But uh, very excited to have uh, Jeff on. Uh, 
at some point really want to get to an article that was written uh, uh, by Jeff back in November. But Jeff, first, you know, normally I read a bio, but you've got kind you've got the, the interesting things about your bio are not so much the, um, uh, at least in my opinion, not so much the uh, the titles and whatnot, but but really how you got there. Do you mind just kind of talking to us about, you know, how you got to where you are and, and some of the stops along the way? Well, I uh, started out reading Road to Serfdom and Ayn Rand and things like that, like a lot of young people, books that, that my father had in the house and uh, developed from there. Uh, when I was in undergrad in the late 1980s and early 90s, I went and saw Dr. Ron Paul when he ran for president, actually, back then in 1988. And so got to know him or some of the people around him and stayed in touch with him over the years. Uh, and then uh, eventually a good friend of mine was attending UNLV and the master's program there where both Murray Rothbard and Hans Hoppe taught. And he convinced me, you got to come see this guy, this Murray Rothbard guy, he's really interesting. And so uh, I didn't know much about him at the time. This is the early 90s when I was starting law school. And so I drove up to Las Vegas and I saw him and sat in on one of his classes. And so just over the years developed an interest as, as a lay person in, in economics. I'm certainly no economist, but uh, ha have read pretty widely in, in the Austrian school. But I also know what I don't know. And that is I, I don't have a deep grounding in, or background in the, you know, the larger, more mainstream traditions or the mathematical or statistical or modeling traditions. So I'm very much just a lay type uh, observer and commenter. Yeah, and I, so I was, I was, that was actually a question I was going to ask you because, you know, you write a lot about economics. You're a, a, a lawyer by, by trade, um, like myself, and, but, you know, you write just as much, and, and I think, just, uh, you know, um, like when it comes to like blog posts and that sort of thing, I don't, I don't know how many, how many, how much you've done publishing in academic journals, but lots of blog posts and that sort of stuff on economics, but, but you don't consider yourself uh, an economist? No, certainly not. Okay. But, but, but that being said, I think any reasonably smart lay person can read in, in various disciplines and inform themselves. You know, it's just that I think economics affects all of us in a way that, let's say, uh, neuroscience doesn't or physics doesn't. You know, I'm, I, don't, I don't read about automotive engineering. I just kind of assume that whatever is under the hood of that Toyota Camry is going to work. <laughs> And I don't have to think too much about it. And, and the difference there, of course, is that the people at Toyota and I have a win-win uh, relationship. They want to give me, they want my money and I want a car that works well. So I don't have to study and think about that as much. But when it comes to economics, a lot of people are trying to sell us things that are absolute garbage and that are not win-win, that are absolutely contrary to our interests. And so I do think as Rothbard thought, as Mises thought, as a lot of people thought, that, that average people, if you're going to be reasonably informed, reasonably worldly, uh, that you need to know a little bit more about e economics than we probably do. I don't know about you folks. I didn't have economics in high school. I didn't have it until undergrad. And so it, it strikes me that we're sending people out in the world pretty uninformed about economics and, and therefore... Uh, vulnerable to political promises, to nonsense they might read about anything from the minimum wage to unemployment to inflation, 
I mean, we're just ha- we're hearing absolute nonsense from the t- from the financial talking head shows right now, for example, in terms of what's going on with the Fed. And so, uh, you know, I have a I have a, a strong interest in economics, but I at the Mises Institute, my my job is more fundraising and administrative and that sort of thing. We have real economists who work here. You, you brought up a point that I, I wanted to talk about. Um, you mentioned we're kind of being sold things. I know you've written about inflation quite a bit. And can you explain a little bit how dangerous the right now we have a goal of inflation? Obviously, that's kind of ran rampant the last few few years. Um, and as it's cooling off, I think people might fall back into the trap of, OK, you know, it's at normal levels. Um, but you've written about how normal levels of inflation aren't necessarily a good thing. Can you explain that idea a little bit more? Well, the idea that we need a little bit of inflation is absolutely insane. It's sick. Uh, we don't need a little bit of inflation like we need a little bit of flu or a little bit of cancer. You know, we want to be cancer free. We want to be feeling. So the natural course of, of a healthy economy, which is actually growing, actually becoming more productive, actually becoming wealthier, is, is of course, deflationary. Uh, we, we would expect to see this, and we do see this in all kinds of real market phenomena. Um, you know, sometimes it's just simple supply and demand changes over time. Uh, like nobody wants to buy a DVD player anymore, right? DVD players used to cost 500 bucks. Now you can go get one for 30 or 40 bucks at Walmart so that your, you know, your grandma or whatever can play old DVDs, I guess, at this point. But that, you know, that's a diff, that's sort of a natural supply and demand deflation. But when it comes to things like laser eye surgery, uh, that used to cost $10,000 per eye, uh, that's now down as I see that sometimes for $500 per eye. Uh, there's all kinds of things where because of productivity, because of technological advances, prices fall and deflation, it, it, which is not, which is characterized by it's not defined by, but it's characterized by falling prices. That's the process of civilization. That's how we all get richer. That's how average people have all kinds of things that only rich people used to have, like cars or a second car or the ability to travel on an airplane, or uh, you know, a refrigerator full of food, all kinds of luxuries, which were once reserved for just the very rich become increasingly available to the middle class and even less affluent folks. I mean, that's, that is the actual process of a healthy economy. We've decided that a healthy economy needs to inflate every year by at least 2%. Uh, right now, of course, we're running well above that. And that's that's all from this. It all stems, in my opinion, from this mania, which is rooted in Keynes in the 1930s, which is that what matters is demand and stimulus. We have to get people to buy more stuff. And the best way to get people to buy more stuff is to make on the fiscal and monetary side to make money and credit more widely available, cheaper. And we need to constantly stimulate demand when there's a crash in the economy, rather than let a bunch of companies go bankrupt, we need to prop them up and give people money so that they keep buying and buying and buying. And so that's, I guess for lack of a, but I hate this term, but that's, that's the mainstream view of, of economics today is that you build a healthy economy through consumption and demand. And, and from the Austrian or really the, the older 19th and 18th century view, you build an economy through production, the opposite. You know, you have to produce things in order to have the wealth to buy things. So that's that's Say's law in a nutshell. J.B. Say, the Jean-Baptiste Say, the, the great French economist. So uh, th- things are pretty upside down when our central bankers are telling us that 
the slow impoverishment of everyone, not too quick, but just the slow impoverishment of everybody is our express policy. <laughs> uh, that that's, that's crazy. And, uh, I just recommend that, that people think about uh, deflation as a benign force in society and, and a, a natural a natural course of events when markets are left to operate. Yeah, so that, that actually, I think a, a, a pretty good transition into, you know, I, like I said, I wanted to talk about this, uh, this article that you wrote back in uh, November on November 22nd of last year. Uh, the title was, Can a Deeply Unserious America Fix Its Economy? And it hit mm -hmm. on so many of my uh, hobby horses. You know, so, I mean, you know, one of the things you, you bring up is sort of, uh, you know, you start with this idea of there to fix the mess, which is worse than anybody really realizes or most people realize, right? They, they, they see price inflation, but they don't. They don't really they don't really understand the mess that the Fed has created, but you know it's it's going to take some austerity that most people don't want. Um, but instead of having real conversations about debt and the dollar, that's your phrase, which I, I love. Uh, you know, we spend a lot of time, especially you know, and and sort of if I can kind of critique our own side uh, on the center right, right? We spend a lot of time talking about. You know, is Donald Trump going to be let back on Twitter, which it looks like he is. So maybe we can put that debate to rest for a little bit. Um, you know, we talk about all kinds of unserious things, especially at the federal level. Right. Like even even serious issues that just have no the federal government has no business getting involved in those things. Right. Um, and and so we end up not talking about the very serious things. And you come up with uh, and. And Lindsay, I'll send you a, I'll send Lindsay a, a link to this so she can put it in the show notes. But there's a long list of things that the federal government could do to help get us out of this. I mean, some of the interesting things out there that maybe we don't get into, but, you know, means testing Social Security, selling off federal lands to pay down uh, debt. But at the end of the article um, or th this this post, you say, um uh, let's see, the best path forward is at the state and local levels attempting to build regional economies with less fragility in the face of the warring, borrowing, spending, and devaluing mania of Uncle Sam. I love that because Curtis and I, we work in state government, in state politics, and so we're always interested in how can we sort of build an economy in Oklahoma that insulates itself to the, to the extent that it can Right, like we don't affect monetary policy at the at, at the federal level, but but what can we do to sort of insulate Oklahomans from, uh, as you said, the mania of Uncle Sam? Well, it's as long as you're using the U.S. dollar, that port, part of it's very tough. Right. Uh, as long as business in Oklahoma is being conducted in U.S. dollars. Uh, now, I would suggest that any state consider creating a, a gold reserve. Or if you're so inclined, a Bitcoin reserve fund uh, to allow for a different type of currency to be used in the event of some real crisis with the dollar. And I'm not predicting such a crisis. It's probably a long way off because the thing the thing about the dollar is you have to understand it relative to other currencies. Uh, it's it's losing value rapidly relative to actual stuff, <laughs> stuff we might want to buy. Uh, but it it's not losing value rapidly relative to other currencies. 
put it mildly, it's done quite well uh, since COVID. And, and that's understandable in the sense that the U.S. government and the U.S. Treasury, the U.S. military is still viewed as the king of the hill. And so in uncertain times, a, what, a flight into safety is what we might expect. And so people around the world are more comfortable holding larger dollar balances. And when they're holding it, that means that the, the supply is, is uh, reduced rather than you know it being spent. And so it goes up in value. So I'm not, I'm not uh, crying wolf on the dollar just yet, but states have a real pickle in front of them. And that is very simple, that they can't print dollars. They're not sovereign issuers of currency. And increasingly, especially the, the, the states like California are finding it very difficult to issue bond debt, whether at the state level, the municipal level, whatever is, I mean, how, what, what interest rate do you want to loan money to the California state government so it can build its choo-choo train between Bakersfield and Fresno? I, I want junk bond rates for that as an investor. Thank you very much, okay? <laughs> Uh, so it's not so easy to borrow at the state level. Uh, and as a result of this, I think states need to be thinking proactively, first of all, about their own economy, about their own you know, business environment to be attracting the best and brightest. I mean, right now we still have this degree of freedom within the United States where you can move between the 50 states. You don't have to learn a new language. You don't need a passport. Um, Americans are much more mobile than people in other parts of the world. Europeans, you know, in America, we, th you know, you just talk to some, oh, I got a new job. I'm moving to Dallas. I mean, that's just, that's just a common thing, you know, in Europe, which we consider a Western economy, that's very uncommon. So this is something where, yes, there is some pain involved perhaps in uprooting your life, but look, compared to what our ancestors went through, uh, it's, it's negligible. And so I, I heard a, a podcaster the other day, and I'm paraphrasing him. I hope I get it right. His name is, is Aaron or Oren McIntyre. Uh, and he was basically saying, I'd much rather have 10 Ron DeSantis Floridas than have the U.S. House or the Senate or the presidency. Mm -hmm. and, and I agree with that entirely. It's too far gone. Um, the, the, my article you alluded to, you know, we have, we have debt. We have entitlements. We have government spending, which includes military adventurism and foreign policy, and then we have the dollar itself. So those four mechanical structural issues not only are not being dealt with, they can't be dealt with. I mean, it's too far gone. If the, if the, you know, not only do we have $31 trillion in debt, which now with rising interest rates is gonna pose a real, a real problem to Congress in terms of paying the interest on that debt every year, it's soon gonna rise to a trillion dollars a year and be the single biggest item in the yeah. budget, ahead of Social Security, Medicare, defense. Just the interest but payments, right? That's, that's you're Just the interest payments. But beyond that, there's really a couple hundred trillion dollars in off-balance sheet liabilities, which would get any publicly held company following gap rules under Sarbanes-Oxley, it would get the CEO thrown in jail if they were keeping that, that sort of pension liability off the books. But Uncle Sam keeps its Social Security and Medicare pension liabilities off the books. We've promised older people that we're going to pay them this money. Uh, the over 65s in this country are going to double in the next 30 years. Okay. Uh, they're going to double. So we're never, ever, ever going to bring in enough taxes to pay for those entitlements. 
And an economist named Lawrence Kotlikoff has identified basically there's a 200 trillion with a T fiscal gap between like the, the discounted net present value of likely future tax revenues versus likely future entitlement expenditures. There's a $200 trillion gap. We're never going to pay those entitlements in a meaningful way. We may pay them nominally, but they will be inflated into relative worthlessness. So we just have to understand that these structural issues are, are beyond the political realm in Washington. There's no candidate. There's no party. There's no vote that can save us from this. You know, when you think about James Dean is in a car and he's driving too fast and he's going around a sharp corner and he's approaching a cliff. There is a moment in time where he could still use braking or counter steering to save the car from going over the cliff. But there's also a moment in time where he goes beyond that and there's no longer anything you can do. When it comes to the US federal government's fiscal house, we're beyond that, that apex in the curve. So as recently as let's say about 20 ish years ago, let's, let's say January of 2001, George W. Bush enters office after the Bush versus Gore thing in the Supreme Court. And at the time, the total federal debt was between five and $6 trillion. So at that point, it still may have been mathematically possible to wrestle that beast to the ground. As you mentioned, means testing, tax increases, whatever it might have been. But now I think at 31 trillion and counting, it's it's too late. It's just too late. So I would encourage, you know, people who like OCPA, we have a, a, a shop here in Al my home state of Alabama called Alabama Policy Institute. Uh, there's there's some great there's some great words around the country, you know, Mackinac, you name it. And uh, I would strongly encourage people in their own political thinking and their own economic thing, turn your backs on Washington stop spending emotional energy, stop spending uh, campaign funds, stop, you know, don't give money to some knucklehead running for U.S. Senate from the GOP. There's nothing he or she can do. It's too late. Uh, it, it's too late. We, we have to be looking at things in terms of the future. And the future is at the state and local level. I think there are natural coalitions that could form between states. I'm, I don't necessarily think we need outright secession. I think there are lots of ways that the U.S. could sort of stay together as an overarching uh, defense compact of, of sorts. Um, but I, I do think that first and foremost, if you're talking about Oklahoma, for example, you know, be working on a business environment that gets people moving there because they're going to pull out another COVID or so, you know, they're going to pull out something. Once they lock people down, they like the taste of that. You know, that's like a, uh, that's like a, a dog that's bitten a human kind of likes it. Um, so they're going to try to revisit that. So, you know, a few states were able to benefit enormously uh, during COVID in terms of net in migration and not just anybody coming there. I would argue that the people flowing into Texas and Florida, yes, yeah, some of them are probably progressive blue, blue state type voters, but a lot of them have, have some degree of wealth, some degree of business ownership, some degree of entrepreneurship skills, you know, the kind of things that you want in your citizenry as opposed to bums uh, defecating and shooting up on the streets of San Francisco. Let's, let's leave them there, okay? Let's not bring the bums we're not supposed to say bums anymore. Let's not let's not bring the bums to Oklahoma. Yeah, okay. We we, we say um, bums on this podcast. 
Yes. So there's, I just think you need a proactive governor, you need a proactive legislature, you need organizations like yours making the case and saying, hey, look, this isn't rocket science, folks. We can prove empirically. You don't have to believe in this stuff. You don't have to have some ideological conversion or some religiosity. We can prove out what works, you know? And, and I'll tell you what, Florida has some, some problems. It has some growing pains. Ron DeSantis nor, nor anybody else can just snap their fingers and bring a bunch of new housing online or make the freeways wider, okay? But I'd much rather have growing pains than dying pains. If those are the choices. And, you know, I, I mean, places like Oklahoma, you know, relatively red, not as red as advertised. The cities tend to be goofy. Uh, you know, I think blue America has a distorted sense of red America. Um, I live in Auburn, Alabama. I can go across the street to Auburn University and I guarantee you it is as woke as as any place in the country. OK, Um so you don't you don't escape woke or or some of these other things by moving to red America necessarily. But what you can escape is more on the structural fiscal economic side. Uh, so I would suggest that uh, state level think tanks or policy shops uh, re really work on some sort of banking or monetary alternative that could protect them in the future and say, look, if there's some sort of national economic crisis or a dollar crisis, of course. You know, pe people in Oklahoma are going to be worse off. Obviously, you trade, you buy and sell goods with the other 50 states, with China, with Thailand, with the, with the rest of the world. You know, you can't just create some insular self-sufficient economy, but you might be able to come up with a currency uh, that all those trading partners would continue to accept, uh, in, in, you know, when, when some sort of dollar crisis came along or some sort of uh, uh, stock market collapse. Uh, some sort of terrorist event, some sort of COVID type crisis. I mean, there's a lot of scenarios. And so um, I think people need to dig in and bolster themselves at the state level. And it, and it's, it's, it's just exciting. It, it's far more exciting. It's far more meaningful and, and it's far more rewarding. Um, you know, again, I happen to live in Alabama. It's only about five or 6 million people. So with, without that much effort, I can sort of get to know the Speaker of the House, some of the Supreme Court justices, uh, some of the mayors. Uh, I'm involved in a, a slightly involved here in a project to, I, I'm a bleeding heart. Uh, our prisons are not air conditioned, which is just, I, I think, absolutely barbaric in the, in the yeah. Southern. So yeah, you can tax me a little bit for that to add air conditioning. But again, I want my taxes and my efforts and my understanding to be, you know, my, to be going to the state level. I want 80% of my taxes to go to Alabama or local and 20% to go to federal government instead of other way around. Right. That's how the Swiss do it. And I think that's, that's a great model. So, you know, you had mentioned some of the other state level think tanks. Um, you know, I want to ask you about some of the other uh, groups like yours, and maybe you don't think they're like yours at all, but sort of some of the more national uh, economics focused uh, groups, you know, you've got the American Institute for Economic Research, uh, which is very friendly to the Austrian school, you've got Mercatus, AEI, um, you know, in your mind, what is it that makes the Mises Institute uh, different? What differentiates um, you you know, Mises from, from other, you know, economic think tanks? 
Well, I think a lot of things. Uh, for, first of all, we're not a policy shop. We, at, the, at least at the federal level, we don't, we don't, we're not interested in public policy. There shouldn't be public policy. The market is the policy. We don't need money, monetary policy. We don't need housing policy. We don't need, you know, uh, energy policy. We don't need any of these policies. Um, and so we've always been uh, not just, you know, physically outside of DC, but I think symbolically. Um, we've always been uh, uh, separate and apart from that uh, game. And, and also, of course, there's a purist Austrian strain, which is entirely based on the praxeological deductions we get from axioms and, and which has a different method, which has a different approach, which views empiricism and data and statistics as having their place, but a different place um, than a lot of broader, what we may call free market uh, economic views or, or economic shops. And, uh, you know, there, that's, that's, that's a big difference. I do think we need theory to explain the world. I think getting rid of theory has ruined economics. I think it's turned it into a kind of a silly uh, uh, discipline that, that just wants to view everything in aggregates and collect data and try to use the methods of the social sciences, you know, observe things and then create a hypothesis and then go test it and, and falsify it. That's not how economics works because economics is human beings. It's a social science, humans coming together, interacting, and, and humans have all kinds of foibles and emotions and, uh, um, you know, they're not molecules, they're not atoms. So, uh, yeah, I think economics has lost its way in that it creates a lot of jobs and sinecures but it doesn't do much good in helping us understand the world and hopefully get happier, wealthier, healthier as a result. Uh, and so the profession, the discipline is in, is in bad shape, in my opinion. Academia is in bad shape, in my opinion. So we're trying to do an end run around that and to take econom ec economics, which is not mysterious. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. Take it to the, to just to the interested lay person and, and, and go around academia altogether. That's what I hope we try to do. How would you, so for the layperson, do you have any advice for someone who's not, who feels kind of overwhelmed with getting into economics, kind of learning about it, to where to start for those people? Yes, I, I, got, a, I got a desk full of places where to start. I, know, I don't know if you're going to use the video, but anyway, I'm holding up Per Bylan's new book, How to Think About the Economy of Primer. Now, I, I, I told him when we came up with this project, it had to be shorter than Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, and it is. It's way shorter. And anybody hit me up. Email me. I'm easy to find. Jeff Dice at Mises.org or hit me up on Twitter. And I'll have Pear send you a signed copy. Just read this book in an hour, maybe two, and you will know more about economics than 95% of the people walking around out there, which is a sad state of affairs. But nonetheless, it is. But, you know, I think you have to uh, I think you have to do a little bit of reading. I don't think there's any way around that. But I don't think you have to do a lot or you have to make this your hobby or your weekends or something like that. I just think that um, once you get through some of the basics and puncture some of the myths in your mind, uh, that, that'll help you. It'll help you in your personal life. It'll help you in your investing if you've got a business in, in how you approach these political uh, promises we hear from candidates. Uh, so it's it's a pretty small time investment, a pretty big payoff in my view. So my 10 year old is reading the, the Bylan book. So uh, it's, it's, it's a great 
it's a great introduction. It's uh, totally accessible. And uh, like you said, can be read in, in, a, in a very short amount of time. And we give it to our, we give that book to our fierce fellows, the, the, the people 18 to 35 years old that go through our, um, our fierce fellowship program, which is designed to uh, identify and equip and train sort of tomorrow's leaders here, here in, in Oklahoma. So uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. And, you know, I'm wondering, uh, another question I wanted to, to ask you about the Mises Institute um, is there's a sense that you uh, have, have um, in my mind, this is for the better, and maybe not everybody would agree with this, but there, that there's been a shift at the Mises Institute since you became the president, where it's, um, it's, it's sort of shifted from less of a like fringe, radical, libertarian organization to more of it, to being more of a, um, to joining the ranks of like other center right groups Without changing, without changing sort of the economics, or you know, you guys haven't kicked out Walter Block or anything like that, right? I mean, but but it just feels like it's it's a more um, accessible uh, organization than it, than it used to be. Is is that is that fair? Is that unfair? <laughs> accessible, man. Um, you mean a kinder, gentler Mises Institute? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's fair. I mean, because I, and I'll, I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, a, a couple of months ago, I was listening to a Walter Block um, lecture, and my wife happened to be walking through, and he had made some pretty like off-color jokes, and and it like, I mean, she was kind of offended by it. I mean, I was kind of like, whatever. But um, it it does seem like, it, you know, it's 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 less of a you know, um, you know. Like I said, I, I guess the way I would say it is sort of like fringe libertarian, um, but 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 is more like yeah, kinder, gentler. Does that I mean does that make sense? Is that do, do you think that 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 that's accurate? Because it's certainly I've talked to a, a number of people who feel that way that it's 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 a more accessible, um, friendlier organization than it used to be. Well, I guess I guess that's good. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't that you you might want to uh, tell the Mises Institute board maybe they'll fire me for uh, uh, watering things down or something. But I feel like we're pretty radical. I feel like we're pretty hardcore in our message. Okay. But I mean, it, we're in a different world today, uh, and we have to accept that we're in a very different world. We're not going to win with 900-page books. We're in a, a, a an anti-intellectual world, a world that's hostile to intellectualism. I mean, that's where you have to start for one. And, and things like Trump did happen. Things like Brexit did happen. So, I mean, you, you guys and gals aren't old enough, but when you hear libertarians mouthing these platitudes that sound like George Will in 1985, you know, that, that's not going to work. I mean, we're, we're past that now. <laughs> we're in a different kind of environment. And I think uh, people have to shift, you know, I'm not saying shift your principles, but I think you have to shift your approach and your tactics and your strategy. Uh, no, no question about it. I, I hope we're growing. I mean, I hope we are reaching people and um, I hope we're, we're, you know, things like anarcho-capitalism, for example, uh, are, are not as interesting or edgy as they were in 2010. Or 2008, you know, those th things like that have changed. Um, I think libertarianism, which is 
which has become a word that's watered down and pretty useless now, almost like liberalism. Uh, and I think most, most people, uh, I think libertarian has morphed into something that went away from property rights and sovereignty and anti-war peace, you know, so that we can have trade amongst people and nations as opposed to, you know, forceful fighting. Uh, it, it's morphed into some sort of self-help or liberation theology, you know, self-actualization. You know, libertarianism has become this left cultural uh, mainstay. And that, I'm not interested in that. Uh, that doesn't interest me at all. I, um, th these aren't, you know, pe people should keep that stuff to themselves. I, I'm interested in property and, uh, and capital. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I asked that question because you answered it much more eloquently than I asked it. But I think you 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 definitely got to the heart of, of what I was trying to get at. Yeah, I mean, we, we're look, we're we we're openly culturally right. We we understand that economics and everything else doesn't happen in a vacuum. So we're pro family. We're pro religion. Uh, we are pro traditional culture and we don't make any bones about it. Love to hear it. Excellent. Well, well, Jeff, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Curtis, did you have something else you wanted to add? No, I think that was that was great. All right. Well, hey, we really appreciate your time, and uh, man, this has been a great a great series um, with with you and Dr. Bylan and Dr. Salerno um, talking about things that you know we hope people will find interesting. That they seem to the feedback has been good so far. So um, I think this was a great episode. Um, you know, we didn't get, I was going to get into you working for Ron Paul and all of that, but, but your, um, uh, your forecast of, of the situation in Washington, uh, basically uh, <laughs> made it so that those questions, uh, were not as, were not as, yeah, I, I mean, that, look, I, I you know, I, I understand that might be sound very Debbie Downer, but it is my view for one. And, and yes, I'm glad Thomas Massey's up there. I'm glad Rand Paul is up there. Um, that's all fine. And I, you know, I look, it's not easy for them. And I, I, I don't want to dissuade someone if that's what they really want to do in life. But I mean, I view when, you know, when you, I view things like what Dr. Keith Smith is doing in Oklahoma at the Free Market Medical Association at his Oklahoma Surgery Center. To me, that is effective praxis. And uh, the way he fought the state regulators, the way he fought the medical boards and all that, I mean, that, that, that interests me. Uh, far more than who the U.S. Senator is from Oklahoma. You'll get no disagreement from, from Curtis and myself. So, hey, we appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on. And, uh, uh, you know, the next time you're in Oklahoma, look us up. Okay, thanks, ladies and gentlemen. I appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate okay, it, Jeff. I know. Thanks a lot.